Good afternoon, everyone. Can you hear that? That's Titus. <laughs> okay. As far as my peasant energy goes, I will explain what that is in a little bit. First, hello. I think he wants my attention. But first, a few life updates. So I am closing in on two interview processes and... Um, I'm a little nervous because I have a really bad track record now of picking bad jobs. So ever since I left ADP, I had two jobs since and both did not go well. And so I'm just nervous I'm going to make a mistake and land in a hellhole again. And the thing is too, neither of them seem really perfect, which is unfortunate because I think if I were not on a time crunch to get a job to save for law school, I would be able to look around more for the perfect job. But not only do I need to pay my bills, but I also only have a year and a half before I go to law school. So commission structures that allow me to make money off of residuals just don't make sense for me. You know, so I'm having to weigh which job is going to pay me the most if I just come out of the gates and kill it for a year. That being said, now that I'm closing in on an income, I have re-engaged with CASA again, and I have selected a child. So right now I'm in the waiting period of 7 to 10 days for the court to officially assign me to his file. And I ended up getting a 16-year-old boy. So originally I signed up to help out 18 to 21-year-olds thinking my life skills would be more helpful to people like them because they're trying to get up on their feet, pay their own rent, find apartments, stuff like that. And then I learned that those 18 to 21-year-olds are still in foster care. So immediately I already felt a little disconnected from them because I was already on my own at that age. And at the same time, clearly they're not on their own trying to make it out there. So it makes no difference if I'm just helping a 16-year-old instead. And she also said she had more 16 to 17-year-olds. So that's how I got assigned my kid, even though I didn't get to have that experience of reading a couple files and choosing which one spoke to me the most. She only sent me one and said, this is probably the best one for you based on what we have. Apart from that though, I immediately felt excited once I re-engaged because foster youth I think are my bleeding heart exercise and it's one of those things where as soon as I did it, I just felt this, ah, I hit the spot of this is what I should be doing. So I felt warm, I felt fulfilled, I felt meaningful, you know. So I'm excited for that. Also, if you recall, about a month ago, I partook in this LSAC digital forum where basically most of the law schools were there except for Harvard. And I spent all of my time in the Yale breakout room with the director of admissions. And I really genuinely enjoyed her conversation, but also as part of my sales-esque strategic drip campaign over the next year, I sent her a thank you note. And she didn't respond for quite a while. This was several weeks ago. And I figured, oh, well, whatever, as long as she read it. And she finally responded today. She said, let me pull it up. Hi, Ariel. Thank you for your kind note. It was such a pleasure to meet you. And I really appreciated that insight you shared with me. I'm so happy to hear that you'll be applying next cycle. And yes, definitely reach out in February when you're in town. My best. Ah. <laughs> uh, Yes, I am going to unleash a year-long drip campaign to Yale, Michigan, Harvard, UVA. There's so much in life that just translates over from sales, 
You know, I just got to breed some familiarity. Also, this Friday, I'm going to see Joe Coy, the comedian, and I'm going to see him with a couple pole friends. And then on Saturday, I'm going to an opera called La Traviata with my friend Jasmine, who I also met from pole. I really like my friendship with Jasmine because we, it was one of those slow burn organic friendships where there's no pressure because you didn't really care too much for each other at first. You know, they were just an acquaintance or a classmate. But over the course of a few months, we were studying together because I was studying for the LSAT and I still am. And she was studying for job interviews. So that's how we got close over time. And yeah, I'm really enjoying that. And then lastly, my brother is coming up next Friday for an early Christmas. I'm very excited because I really enjoy spending time with my family, the family I have left. And the reason he's coming up early is because for actual Christmas Christmas, he's going to be in Japan with his girlfriend. So he'll come up next Friday. And one of the things he's going to help me with is audio. So he actually gave me the microphone that I'm recording in, just like he gives me his old cameras and all this other gear that unfortunately I just don't know how to use as well as him. So he's going to come up and take a look at my little setup, which isn't much of a setup. This microphone, you can't see it, but it is holding on for dear life. I don't think I screwed it in properly. So it is dangling. That being said, he's also going to bring this thing that I believe is called the dead cat as what he calls it. It's that furry cloth that microphones look like when you look at behind the scenes for movie sets. So I think that's going to help with my breathing and my just background noise. All this to say, hopefully my audio will get a little better soon. And this brings me to the topic of today, which is my peasant energy. So what is peasant energy? I told my friend over Thanksgiving about one of my insecurities, which is that I have peasant energy. And of course, she's so kind. She's like, I don't think you do. I really don't think you do, which is so sweet and helpful. But the reason I feel that way is I have what I'll call just typical Great Gatsby complex, right? I came from an underprivileged background and I've worked so hard to make my life look completely different from how I used to be. That impacts my clothes, for example, right? But I still worry that there are some things about me that I just can't shake off. Some core characteristics and traits in my personality that give off this feeling of scarcity, which means poor, desperate, and also uncivilized. I'm worried some of the things I do just are uncivilized because I feel like I was raised by wolves. My parents never taught me anything that I can recall. And I think a big part of it comes from just how poor I was growing up. So I've tried to explain what it feels like to grow up in an abusive environment, what the emotional dynamics are like, but the peasant energy I'm talking about comes from how insecure I felt about being poor. As a kid, I was always terrified that people might pass by my house and see where I lived. And my stomach would turn whenever people came over to our house. Usually it was my dad's customers because he would start fixing cars at home. Or when my mom got sick with cancer, some of her coworkers would come over and bring their kids. And it always made my stomach sink and turn over for them to come in and me to brace the impact of what their facial expression was going to be like. There was one particular kid, he's about my age, when he came into our house, 
his eyes were so furrowed because he was absolutely shocked and confused at what our house looked like. And I was so mortified. Okay, so let me explain what our house looked like. Let me set the scene. First off, we lived in a really nice little suburb. It was a predominantly white suburb, very safe. It's about an hour outside of LA, and the next biggest town is Thousand Oaks. So everyone knows Thousand Oaks. We lived on a little cul-de-sac hill. So we were about halfway up the hill. We were on the right, and our house was a double-story house. And the color combination was brown and beige. You know, brown is the dark color accent, so... In the parts where it's not dark, it would be that beige tone. The type of brown we had was not this like classy dark brown. It was a mud brown. So it's a very middle tone darkness brown. And it's a little bit warm toned. I think it's probably from the 80s because I heard the 80s were very brown times. And that makes sense because my parents purchased the house in 90, I believe. I was born in 1991. Time goes on, in the 2000s, most people would repaint their homes by then, and we just never did. So up close, you would see in how bad condition everything was. The wood and the paint was chipped. It was crusty. Like, if you've seen those pictures of what droughts look like, the floor of the lake where it's all cracked, that's how our paint looked up close. And the wood would fray. You know, it'd have those splintering. Not like one splinter here and there. Like the whole end is very splintered out into long, thin, skinny pieces and layers. And as you can imagine, our windows were those old kind of windows too, where the frame of the windowsill is just this skinny, brittle little metal. And we didn't have that nice double pane window. We didn't have the white paint or frame around the windows. It was just the bare bones window. And they were very hard to open and close. I remember specifically there was a window on the first floor that would always get stuck. And we would have to use both hands and our full body force to open it. It's like some Studio Ghibli shit, you know? And the garage we had, it was all manual. So we had a two-door garage and the doors we had were not the kind that go up electronically and recede into the, you know, into the garage. They were just big square blocks of wood. And we had to manually pull them up. And if we were trying to close it, jump up to grab the little rope and pull it down and close it. So it's kind of like a door hinge, except with the hinge on the top of the garage door. And this, like many other things, was a big source of insecurity as I realized early on that our house didn't look like other people's houses. And again, we lived in a nice area. So whenever we would drive around town, I would always look for validation in finding another home that also looked dated like ours. And I would be so happy when I saw a garage door that was just like ours. It didn't retract. It was just wood. But then I would be disappointed when I learned that even those doors would still open up with electricity. Like, You could still press a button and the door would open on its own. I never found somebody in my 16 years of living there with somebody who had to manually pull their garage door up like we did. As far as the cars we had, as you can imagine, they were old. I'm pretty sure they're from the 80s and Toyotas. So you can imagine the very square-like Toyotas. 
thing is about those, though, they were also faded. So one of them was a, a, a gray Toyota, and it had the kind of fade and gradient that you see on metal when the metal's been left out. So let's say a car that's been abandoned somewhere, that's what it looked like, like that kind of color scheme. And my dad's Toyota truck was even more beat up. You know, the letters were coming off and it had rust on it. It's the kind of thing that you see, you know, farmers, sometimes they'll have these old beat up trucks that they leave outside their house because they have new trucks in their driveway. Yeah, it looks like that. (laughs) And I remember once, and kind of a sad story, but I remember in middle school, my mom was coming to pick me up one day. And part of me was happy because she usually didn't pick me up. I would usually walk home and she would be busy at work because by then she was the only breadwinner because my dad's a lazy piece of shit. But at the same time, I had this dread because I knew that students would notice the car. They would notice how old it was. It just stood out like a sore thumb. This was the 2000s by then. Everyone already had upgraded their cars and the designs were more round by then. And ours was this big, clunky, square, gray, faded thing. So I knew students would notice and would have some sort of reaction, but I didn't know just how much reaction they would have. When she pulled up, people noticed, I noticed they noticed, and they started laughing really loud. Like, these are kids that I don't even know. We were just all waiting in the front of the school to get picked up, you know, when parents drive in. And just all these kids started laughing and pointing all at the same time, and they didn't even know each other. And this was happening while I was still walking to the car. So I basically shuffled my way to the car, got into the passenger seat, and I ducked. I ducked under the door so they couldn't see me. Which also makes me sad because by ducking, as they continued to point and laugh, they were pointing and laughing at her. So it makes me a little sad. Oh, and then when I was probably around 10 or 11, my family bought a used minivan from one of my dad's customers. And that was a big deal for us. It was our first car in like 10 plus years. I remember we were pulling from our family savings. My parents just had this little tin that they kept in a closet with all of the money. And they were counting out $3,800 for it. And to me, it was such a big deal. I mean, to us, it was a big deal. That even though in retrospect now, I know $3,800 is nothing in the grand scheme of things. And for a car, back then... It was such a big deal that I would have thought, oh, it's feeding time. Back then, I would have thought it was on the scale of like $10,000. And the reason I'm mentioning all these car stories is this last one here. You know how minivans have a middle seat that's really only just long enough to hold two people? We ended up removing that seat from the car and using it as a sofa in the living room. That was our couch. And that is (laughs) so embarrassing. This is where my peasant energy complex comes from. That is so bad. And that was like the coveted seat. Oh, God. Um, And, you know, it's supposed to attach into the floor of the car. So the bottom of that little seat row has pointy attachments. And so those pointy attachments meant that when it was sitting on the ground, it easily slid around because it didn't have a nice flat base. So yeah, I think you're starting to see how pitiful (laughs) this whole thing was. 
But wait till we go inside. Okay, so let's go inside the house. Walk with me virtually here. Dun, 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 dun. <laughs> now, as we enter the front door, it's the kind of house with a two-door entrance. But psych, we can only use the door on the right. The right, because the door on the left was blocked by a bunch of stuff, which I will describe in a bit. But that door on the right is also the corner where my dad would lay all of the bamboo sticks that he so lovingly pruned for the whole afternoon and to make into whips, he would lean those against the right front door. So on the left, I want you to think hoarder, okay? On the left is this large two-layer table. Let's think maybe seven, eight feet long, three feet wide. It's homemade by my dad. It's made of wood. And on it is piled a bunch of just crap. Crap, I can't even remember what all of it was. But it was a lot of, just a lot of junk. You know, again, imagine a poor hoarder. That's what it looked like. And it piled up in the shape of a pile. And it was covered with so much dust. And the one thing I do remember that was there was mismatched pairs or one half of a pair of shoes. Hand-me-down shoes from other families that were at least five years ago. So I remember when I looked at them, they were too small for me to wear. And I think some of my dad's tools, I can't remember what else. And then, of course, a thick layer of dust. So let's go into the house. My house was the kind that it had stairs right to the left of you as soon as you enter. The stairs are basically in front of you. And our stairs, in fact, most of our home was originally covered in carpet. Again, makes sense, right? But when I was a toddler, I remember my dad took it all off. He didn't like it. And I remember he would pick out the staples on the edge and then roll the carpet around and roll it into this big roll, basically, as he's peeling it off. And what was under the carpet was a brown tile, a small tile. It's probably only about eight inches by eight inches. And it was unfinished. So if it were a tile that's supposed to go on the top layer, you know, it'd be a little glossy. These were more matte. And again, they were like a dirt mud brown. Here and there, they would have staples in the sides from where the carpet was. And sometimes the tiles broke too. So we would have missing tiles, fractured tiles. And if it was bad, like we would just remove it. And underneath those tiles was this dark, really dark, basically black, gritty surface, which I can only describe as feeling like artificial dirt. What I think it was, was it's the adhesive layer that it's like glue where they would put the tiles on top of. So moving out of the entryway, to our left is the kitchen. And on our way to the kitchen, there, there used to be this cute little dining area that was siphoned off from the living room and the kitchen, so it was in between that. And it was siphoned off by this little L-shaped wall. It didn't go all the way around, so it wasn't a closed room. It was just like a little area off to the side. And guess what? My dad did not like that either. So he also took that apart. So he took off this wall and he didn't do anything to patch it up. So on our floor, our exposed tile floor, we had this big L-shaped basically gash on the floor because it would look even more exposed and gray underneath and there might be staples and there might be nuts down there that we had to shave down. So I always had to be careful when I was walking around it. On top of that, my dad also did not like the wallpaper. So he tore that off, which, 
you know, as I tell this story, it's just like, damn, I really do think he was mentally ill. He must have been. He's just destroying this house bit by bit. It seems very representative of his mental state. But anyways, wallpaper's sticky, right? So he didn't do a clean job when he tore it off. It's like when you get books in the mail or mugs, you know, the stickers on the bottom, those you might try to take off, but they're so sticky, they don't come off cleanly. So instead you get, you know, these layers and streaks. That's how our walls look like with the wallpaper. And now on these bare walls, which underneath the wallpaper is just, I don't know, it's just wall. Um, It's a little bit glossy and shiny. We drew on that as kids. As much as I wish I could say I was civilized and did not contribute to this embarrassment of a home, as you also know, we were A, kids, and B, raised by wolves. And we were raised by wolves because nobody told us not to. Any parent would tell their kids not to draw on the walls. We were never told not to. We were never taught civilized things like that, you know? And this is disgusting, but excuse me, we were kids. My little brother would wipe his boogers on the wall. (laughs) Ah! And you know what? I did it too after. So bad. I did it because he started the habit and I hung out with him a lot. And so I picked up the habit. So uh, embarrassing, disgusting, I know. But again, we were kids. But yes, our walls were the shiny underbelly of wallpaper with scraps of remaining wallpaper covered in hideous half-assed scribbles and laced with crusty toddler boogers. (laughs) Do you see why I feel like I have peasant energy or even if I don't seem like I have it, do you see why I would be very protective and insecure about potentially exuding peasant energy? Because this is the picture of where I came from. But we are not done. Far from it. Let's go into the kitchen. So, the kitchen used to have these really cute saloon doors. And once again, my dad did not like that, so he took them off. And so now it was just this empty doorway into the kitchen, which wasn't the worst crime he had committed to our house. But still, inside the kitchen, imagine this. All the cabinets were torn off too. So in place of those cabinets where normal people store their dishes, my dad bought these big, tall shelves on wheels from Costco. It's like the industrial kind that you see in restaurants where they store their ingredients. And that was our storage for all of our pots and pans and dishes in the kitchen. Everything went there. And if you look at the floor, after my dad tore out the cabinets, You can see the flooring in the kitchen was a little damaged too. Like I don't think we had tile all around the kitchen because there were patches that were missing and just kind of like concrete-y under and presumably because that's where the cabinets used to be. So it would get dirty easily because you would have these tiles with these edges and it would just collect a lot of dirt and gunk in the cracks. And the cabinets themselves were, of course, falling apart. Like it was this cheap adhesive to give it that wood look so that was peeling off so you'd have little flaps coming off ah this is so embarrassing and as for the sink so when my dad tore the cabinets off he he basically left the wood that was holding up the sink exposed so over time that wood at some point started to rot because it would get in contact with water from all the washing dishes washing hands etc So this rotten 
piece of wood that was turning black, he replaced it with concrete blocks. Those rectangle gray concrete blocks. He stacked three of them. But because it wasn't the perfect height fit, he broke one of them, I believe. So we had two normal blocks and one lopsided one. And they weren't even stacked neatly. They were staggered. And I think the leg of the wood started to splay out a bit. So yeah, that's how our kitchen stood up. And if we turn our attention back to the living room, the living room is now this basically the rest of the house because he tore down the divider wall. So it's now just this big space. We didn't all have rooms, you'll see, but we all had desks. It was where we would do our homework. And they were these big, humongous, heavy metal desks from offices. You can Google them. If you Google them, they're called vintage tanker desk, which is quite accurate to how they felt. They are like 200 pounds. They're these big metal things. They're either um, gray color or a puke green, and they have these rounded corners, so they're not a sleek, slim look. They are very bulky. And they'd have drawers built on one side or both sides, and they'd have, you know, this little... I don't know what to call it. It's like when they have those slide-out kitchen cutting boards. Yeah, they would have the slide-out board, except it was metal. And I googled it. Apparently, this design, it's called vintage, right? It started in the 40s. It started in the 40s and finally went out of style in the 80s. That's what lined our entire first floor, where our living room was, and dining room area. I don't know exactly where we got them, but I remember my parents talking amongst themselves kind of excitedly about a place that they saw a bunch of furniture set out. So it was probably from the street. And that happened a lot in our childhood. My parents would be driving around and see some stuff laid out for free, and my dad would come home excitedly and tell my mom about it, and then we'd all rush to go pick up the furniture before somebody else did. And in addition to these big bulky desks, we also had these big bulky metal filing cabinets. And that's where we stored a lot of our just regular household stuff, in metal filing cabinets. As far as actual normal people living room furniture, we didn't have any real furniture. And what's interesting is when I look at old baby pictures, when I was a baby baby, our house, if you look in the background, it used to be cute. Like we had these cute Chinese paintings that were hanging high on the wall because we had high ceilings in the living room. And we had this, you know, modern Chinese-esque furniture. So it's not super traditional, but you can tell it's, you know, Chinese furniture designed by Chinese people. It has elements of traditional Chinese vibes. And I don't know what happened, but I think this must have just been before my dad started going mental and tearing shit up. So by the time I had awareness as a toddler, we really just had remnants of that cute furniture we used to have. I'll give you another example. I found this big dirty storage box outside of our house that had been rained on, it had gunk in it, cause you know, leaves fall and then rain falls on the leaves, like all of that. And I finally opened it and you know what I found wrapped inside? Tons and tons of beautiful china, beautiful Chinese bowls with Chinese designs and plates, so pretty. And for some reason we didn't use them. I think it's probably because we were kids, so they knew we'd drop them, so we had plastic bowls, but even when we grew out of that, we never took them back out. 
So I do think this is correlating with my dad's mental health deteriorating. But going back to that remnants of cute Chinese furniture, so we had a table, which we eventually got rid of, and we had dining chairs, but whenever those chairs broke, we didn't replace them. We instead just got rid of them one by one, and (laughs) uh, what we would do instead is pick pick up these white outdoor plastic chairs, you know, the kind people have outdoors, when they're giving them away for free. So when people throw them out in front of their house and write free on them, we would go pick them up, wash off the dirt, and take them inside and use them at our eating table. And we would shuffle them around when we wanted to watch TV. So we would gather around a bunch of mismatched chairs, some office chairs, some lawn chairs, and watch TV. It's kind of like an outdoor BBQ, because when you have outdoor BBQs, you do have a lot of mismatched chairs. It's just that was our living room. And as I mentioned already, the highlight of our seating arrangement was eventually when we bought that minivan, that seat that we used as a sofa. Like that was the closest thing we had to a sofa. And at that point, I knew other people had sofas. So that was kind of exotic to us. And it became the coveted seat. And behind us, well, we have this little area to watch TV. There was this huge monstrosity of a homemade wooden bunk bed that my dad made probably 12 feet by 12 feet by 10 feet tall. And he wanted all of us to sleep there as a family. And I think we did for a little while. He built it when I was pretty young, but eventually my mom died. We started inhabiting the other rooms. And at this point, we all hated my dad. He was disgusting and he made me incredibly uncomfortable. He also snored so loud. So yeah, like we were not sleeping with him. I think some of the boys might have continued to sleep with him, but I skedaddled as soon as there was another bed to be away from him. And I'll say that we can skip the rest of the first floor because other than that, it's really just this other messy closet we had, my grandpa's room and his bathroom. And he maintained that with some semblance of civilization, the way he set up his room. All right, so let's go upstairs. As you know, The stairs have the carpet taken off, so it's just unfinished wood. The wood has no gloss over it, so there's no veneer, and as a result, it's very faded and it's dull because it's kind of been sandpapered down by the friction of our souls walking on it. And upstairs at the top of the stairs, to the left are a bunch of storage cabinets that are built into the wall, which I always thought were super cute. But the doors were also falling off, so they were crooked, some had no doors, and they were stuffed to the brim with just a bunch of old sheets that we never use. Like, it's similar to that china sitting outside. It's like, we have nice things, why don't we use them? We only really use the top left shelf of the storage, so to fit all of our family's towels, bath towels are big, it was usually stuffed to the brim. But again, even the parts that we didn't use were stuffed and messy too. Now, the top of the stairs was really just a small section of area, you know, where all the rooms upstairs connected to. So you just were surrounded by a bunch of doors to different rooms. On the east side, we had my sister's room. And before, it was our room as well. So this is all very tentative because we switched around a lot, especially when my dad would uh, get mad at me and kick me out of my room and have to move in with my sister. And so to the Northeast was my old, my mom's former office. Then when she died, it was my room. Again, 
until I was kicked out. And to the north was a bathroom that we never used. Yeah, for some reason I never understood, but my dad said it was broken or unusable. So we never used that bathroom except to occasionally use the sink and and the toilet. But the shower was covered in webs. And eventually, several years later, I got sick of always having to wait for that one master bedroom shower. So I cleaned up the webs and started using that shower. And my little brother would use it too. And to the northwest was the master bedroom, which led to a master bathroom. So the master bedroom was where my mom slept. And she didn't sleep on a bed. She slept on this wooden board, which was laid over storage boxes filled with old clothes. And half of her bedroom was taken up by storage boxes stacked high to the ceiling. And they were filled with years and years of clothes that they had collected over the years from people giving us hand-me-downs. But the weird thing is we rarely took these clothes out, so we never wore them anyway. It was only once when I was like uh, 13-ish, 12, that I wanted to finally go through this big pile of mess and clean them out. And as I went through it, I found so many nice clothes I could wear. But so much time has passed that they were about 10 years out of style now. But they were still the nicest, barely worn clothes I'd ever have because my parents never bought me clothes. So, So even though they were out of style, I remember taking them and wearing them anyway. And I got made fun of later for it because they were very out of style. But... Uh, I also remember as a kid, you know, you go to elementary school and our elementary school had, you know, branded sweaters and hoodies for the kids and we never had money for that. So what we would do is go on the weekend to my elementary school when nobody was around and we would dig through the lost and found. I also remember when my sister was in middle school and I was still in elementary school, we shared one pair of jeans. One pair of slightly bell-bottom jeans that her friend had given her as a hand-me-down. And this was the time when bell-bottoms were all the rage. And it was mostly her pants because there was kind of this understanding, at least from my point of view, that she needed them more because she was in middle school. And I just kind of intuitively knew that middle school was more judgmental. I was still in fifth grade, which meant I could get away with my other non-jeans clothes from the 90s. But occasionally, I would plead if she would let me wear them here and there. And since that was her only pair, we had this little routine where she would come to me and ask me if it looked too faded, if it looked too thin to wear. The whole thing was that she wore them every day. She was worried that A, it would be obvious, and B, that they might make a hole. So almost every day, we would do this thing where we would huddle over the pants and, you know, hold it in the in our fingers and examine if it was wearable for just one more day. And finally, let's go into the master bathroom. I'm probably going to start croaking more because my voice is tired. So bear with me. We're almost done here. The master bedroom had a shower, not a tub, and it had old school shower doors. And my dad always said that the shower doors were bad because they leaked and that water that came out would cause damage on the surrounding tiles, which is true, it did. Those tiles came loose and like downstairs, the tiles would come off and expose that gritty dark adhesive layer underneath, which again, basically felt like packed in dirt. So as a result of a lot of our bathroom being exposed like that, we would lay down towels to walk over it. So our bathroom was covered in a bunch of mismatched sizes of thin, used, not fluffy, damp towels. 
And at some point, my dad (laughs) decided to put an end to this leakiness, which is basically just caused by the faucet, you know, facing one way. So the water tends to hit the walls of the shower on one side more. And so it would drip down. And so to do that, (laughs) he decides to bring in this huge slab of metal, like nine feet tall, two feet wide, and just bring it inside of the shower and just lean it against the side of the shower doors that he didn't want to have the water hit so that it would slip out so that he could just block the water. And so just like our front door, we could only enter in from the right side of the shower, the side that was closest to the shower head. And I still cringe at that metal thing. It was so disgusting. Because think about it, it's subject to water every single day. So it rusted and it collected so much black gunk. And the thing is, it wasn't like a single sheet of metal. It was kind of like a baking pan, this gigantic baking pan. So the edges, the corners would come up, like there was ridges. And so that's where it collected the most black gunk at the bottom in the corners and ridges. And that black gunk ended up reproducing so much that it would spread onto the floor of the shower too. So eventually there was so much like black and gross gunk and just like dots of mold, I guess. It was like, it formed a dotty pattern. The only safe space to stand in the shower was a tiny, not even foot long radius of a circle. (sighs) The more I tell these stories now as an adult, I'm just like, why were you so stupid? Of all things you could do, why would you decide to put in this big metal slab? I don't know if it's his poor mentality from like Taiwan countryside or if it's his idiocy because he's a freaking idiot. But now I see it's just so illogical. Anyways, so one other thing that my dad would do is he refused to own his own toothbrush. He used whatever toothbrush was in reach disgusting so he would use our toothbrushes whatever was unlucky enough to be laid out he would just grab it so he would grab different people's toothbrush every night and start brushing his teeth which is fucking disgusting on its own but remember this motherfucker smoked several packs of cigarettes a day so he had gingivitis again what is wrong with this person why how is this like some taiwan countryside shit where you don't believe in toothbrushes or is this your mental illness and stupidity i'm so confused (laughs) all right we are nearing the end before i officially tie a bow on this lovely mtv crib tour i will give you a quick detour a little sneak peek of two special places in our backyard so one was my dad's toyota truck it was on the side of the house Yeah, at some point early on in life, he stopped using it. So he would park it there. And again, it would be filled with so much crap. We would have in the trunk bed were years and years of hand-me-down shoes from other families. And they would just lay there out in the sun, crumpled up, smushed by the weight of the other shoes. The faux leather would be peeling. It'd smell like old shoes. And I would have to dig in because I would find one pair and I'd have to dig through the pile to find another pair. And if I couldn't find another pair, then I had to pick a new pair of shoes. For a couple instances in my life, that really was where I found new shoes. 
And then the last thing was our swimming pool. So we had a swimming pool that was about eight feet deep. And for my whole life, except for maybe one or two summers, we didn't use it because apparently there was a leak somewhere, which again, there's a trend here of things being broken and, and us not fixing it and just not using it. On top of that, it was expensive to upkeep, which that I can understand. So instead, our pool just gathered rainwater. So it was this dark green, brown, even black color with tons of sludge of dirt on the bottom. And at one point, it rained so much one year that the entire pool was filled, not just the deep end. It went all the way to the stairs and it was filled with this green, murky water. And it was at that point that we had to do something and drain it out. I think we were able to set up a pipe that created a vacuum so that the water drained out into the nearby dirt. But when it got to the bottom, I guess there wasn't enough pressure or water to do it. I don't remember. So we had to pick it up in pails. But when most of the water was gone, all that was left was this sludge of dirt, like black gunk, dead bugs, just all this stuff through the years And we didn't have tools. We had to scoop that up with our bare hands and put it into the pails and then bring it up by hand. I still think of just how slimy and slippery it was. Okay, so that is it for now. I do feel a little cathartic. I don't necessarily feel better, but at least I got it out of my memories and onto paper. Now you know the source of my peasant energy. I think now you can hopefully see why I would feel this way and be productive and be protective in a sense of my past in in that I don't want people to know about it because it is pretty pitiful, right? Thank you for listening. Bye.